Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Well, we are diving in today uh, to the practice of fasting which I know probably just has you all on the edge of your seat. I know my boy Russell over here, is, he's just been chopping at the bit. I mean, he's tired, he's sleep deprived, but he came today because he knew we were talking about fasting. <laughs> um, so a little recap of where we've been. Last summer, I think some of our core team, we really brought our, just kind of coming out of the season of COVID and lockdowns and in some ways just kind of surviving and sustaining. We had this summer a season of reflecting and kind of coming back to core values and vision for the community and for this church and what we feel like the Lord's called us to be as a part of the body of Christ in our city and a role we're supposed to play. And, and we had some meetings. We talked about some kind of big picture vision, which we don't do very often. And really simply, we long to be a church that is cultivating, planting, and multiplying small, healthy, vibrant communities of discipleship. So... We exist to create smaller communities of discipleship out in our city, right? We don't exist to fill chairs so everyone can come hear me preach or teach here at a gathering. These events are intentionally only once a month because we are trying to create a space and a community for people who are in a stage of discipleship that you don't want to come to an event every week, right? And, and if you do, there's a lot of other really healthy churches around our city that offer that. And so our vision, very clearly, we're just trying to lean into what we started with of trying to promote the growth of smaller organic communities because we think those spaces cultivate a real authentic place for people to grow as disciples. And, um, and we've talked about, we've defined some things like define disciple, define church. We've had some teachings on those in the fall. And I think something I've, I don't know if I've said it directly up front, but in the cohorts we talk about a lot, I think as we're trying to architect and think through rhythms and structures as for a church, right, we have continually come back to this question of how do people actually change and grow, right? How do we actually do things with our time and energy and resources as a church that are meaningful and fruitful for the mission, right? For all of us growing in maturity and becoming more like Jesus, not just doing things for the sake of doing them or because they feel good or entertain us. And I think this is how I've boiled it down, is I think there's three fundamental things that lead to change and transformation and growth. And there's probably more, and I'm sure, I'm sure we'll keep evolving and developing this, but there's three Ps, an alliteration, easy to remember, people, practices, and paradigms. I think these are three key ingredients for ongoing growth and formation in, in any type of change, but especially in terms of becoming like Jesus. So people, meaning relational attachments, real deep, authentic friendships. I think we become like those who we love and those who we spend time with. And so that's why we push for smaller communities so we can actually be in discipleship environments where we're building real deep friendships with people. And that that is gonna be the primary vehicle for our change and transformation. And that we're learning from each other's strengths and growths and exposing our brokenness and ugliness and continuing to change. Um, paradigms, I think, is, you know, it's preaching, it's teaching, it's, it's information, but I think in our community, many of you will notice we've, for years now, had more of an emphasis on, on paradigms through even 
teaching in story form, right? I think paradigms translate in some ways better through story than just rhetorical, rational, which I love, I'm super nerdy, doing this, right? Me teaching from a microphone. And um, so I think we, we believe preaching, teaching, training cohorts, those have their place, but they're not the primary or at least the only mechanism for growth, maturity, and change. And we'll, we'll talk about this a bit today as we get into the practice of fasting. And the last one is practices, right? And embodied formation. And we, we've been talking about things like rule of life and practices for a handful of years now. And as, as most of us would probably identify as Protestant Christians within the broader body of Christ. And as Protestants, there's lo lots of great strengths for Protestants. But one weakness is we have a very disembodied form of spirituality and discipleship that is hyper-focused on the kind of the mind and the thought world rather than formation and practices and embodied things that we do. And so I think the Protestant church in the last few decades has been in a real move of retrieval of learning from the broader body of Christ to embrace spiritual practices. And I'll hit on some more nuance and caveats with that in a minute. But that is where we have been. We have been in, uh, because of all that, because of what I just shared, we have been in a season of talking about practices. And Tanya actually got a word in a prayer meeting with our core team last summer of an old thing we had taught on years ago called the Jesus Assumptions. And if you read through the Gospels, there are at least, there's probably more, but there's at least six things that Jesus never commands anyone to do. Because he presumes and assumes that the people who are interested in what he has to say are already the type of people who are doing these six things. So he says things, like we'll look at today in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, when you give, when you fast. He doesn't command it because he assumes we're already the type of people who do these things. So for us, we just have taken this as, man, rather than running ahead and talking about all kinds of complex things and theological doctrines, and what if we just actually spent a year sitting in these six practices and tried our best to integrate them into our lives, to become people of these six practices. And what would that maybe do for our spiritual formation and growth to tenderize us to make all the other stuff actually more fruitful and healthier and better? So we are in a season of that. We've talked about prayer. We've talked about community. And now today I'm introducing probably for this gathering and next March, the topic of fasting. So that's where we've been. And let me give, just because I love caveats and I feel like I can't say anything without giving like six caveats and preludes. Let me give one on fasting because I think thus far, you know, when, we've, when me and Matt have helped run some of these rule of life workshops, we've talked about, you know, we've led with, we've tried to be very gentle. So we come to a rule of life workshop, which is this old church history kind of monastic term for creating a structure of spiritual disciplines for your spiritual formation to turn you into a certain type of person, hopefully one that looks, tastes, sounds, acts more like Jesus. And we've, we've tried to do that very softly for all of us Protestants by leading out with activities like asking, what, what brings you joy, right? So we'll, we've kind of waded our way into this because we don't want to come on too strong and make people feel like we're just trying to slam religious practices down our throat. So we've started with things like joy, or we've held conversations 
about how you can turn hobbies and passions that you have and, and see that actually those are spiritual. I mean, me and where's Matthew at? We even had combos about how could video games, like how could you play video games with Jesus? How could, you know, I'm not picking on, on Matthew wherever he is. Um, but we've, I think all of that's legitimate. And I think I have a subtle fear that as now we shift from talking, even prayer and community, those are pretty easy, non-intimidating practices. They both have to do with relationship and intimacy. So we're all kind of all for community and prayer. But now as we shift into these last four, I start getting like a little nervous that all of you are going to be like, just fall asleep on me. Because these are like the classic, like super religious things. Fasting, Sabbath, tithing. Let's put the actual religious word. We like generosity, but tithing and scripture, Bible reading, right? As soon as I... (laughs) As soon as I even sit down to start writing some notes to talk about fasting, I think I just feel this hesitancy, like some of you are already like, nope, mm-mm, not going to go there. And I suspect that that could be for a, a couple reasons, that we have kind of a knee-jerk aversion to this. Um, let's see, how far down the rabbit hole should I go? Um, I think many of us, have been exposed to these practices, maybe even tried them in different seasons, or maybe even do some of them, these latter four. But I think often we have been exposed to them in discipleship communities and environments where discipleship is primarily emphasized, growth and transformation and maturity is emphasized through the transaction of information, through hearing more sermons, doing more Bible studies. And so what happens then is when we approach these four practices, the only reason for doing them would be duty, performance, merit, to earn some spiritual brownie points, at at best for God, and at worst to just do it so other people think we're super spiritual or impressive, right? So in an environment where discipleship is primarily thought to exist in the plane of the mind, right? these embodied practices, the only real motive or option left for us is performance and all these things that are very contrary to the gospel. Duty, impressing people, self-righteousness, right? So they inherently become very religious. But if we, if we can recognize that discipleship is not just a matter of the mind and developing our learning and our intellect and learning more about the Bible, if we can see that our spirituality and our spiritual formation and our growth in Christ-likeness involves people in practices as well, well then these become avenues and doorways for us to grow and change, for God to have access to just hit us with the gospel even more, hit us with grace even more, and fill us with the Spirit even more. So these practices become not some duty or not to impress God or people, but they become mediums for our growth and our change and our formation. And more than that, it helps us start to realize that even if we don't do these four practices, we are already giving our lives and our bodies and our time to other practices that are being shaped by something else and are turning us into different types of people, right? That's the other list over here. We are already living in a culture that values things like indulgence, busyness, control, and defiance. And so these are countercultural kingdom practices so that we are actually being formed into kingdom people, where our lives taste and smell and feel more like Jesus, more like the freedom and the kingdom. So that's my caveat. 
Do with it what you will. Now we're going to talk about fasting. So we're going to open up the key text today we're going to focus on is from Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to follow along, you can. No pressure. I think I'll have some verses up on the screen at some point. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah, this is just a reminder. So I'm up updating the website as we roll these practices out. These are completely invitational. You do not have to do these. But as a community, we would say, hey, what does it mean to be a part of Karam Deo? I'd say you at least entertain the idea or take your own season and flavor of these and you try and implement these six things into your life. And again, each stage of life and season might be different. You don't need to try and do them all at once, but we would invite you to consider these practices of prayer, community, and then today, fasting. Um, so chapter six, Sermon on the Mount. A little context for this chapter. We're not gonna read it all. We're gonna focus on three verses about fasting. But just to give some context, I mean, Sermon on the Mount is, is a special text. I think more ink has been spilt in sermons and academic articles and commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount than any part of the entire canon of scripture. And it's poetic, it's memorable, it's radical, it's, it's a distillation of Jesus's vision for the life in the kingdom. It's a special text for sure. And, and there's debates about, you know, is this hyperbolic? Is Jesus exaggerating? Can we actually live the Sermon on the Mount? Is that even possible? What's the point of this? But if nothing else, if nothing else in it is to be lived out and practiced, the center of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, is on spiritual practices. It's one of the only, if not the only, extended place where Jesus talks about spiritual practices like giving, prayer, and fasting. And just for context, I find it really interesting that immediately following Jesus' instructions in the first half of chapter 6 on giving to the poor, on praying and fasting. There's kind of this little interlude section on do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and decay, but store up treasures in heaven. And then there's some verses about how you cannot serve God and money. And then there's this kind of famous section of passages about do not worry. And Jesus says, therefore, in light of all these things I've just told you and taught, Therefore, do not worry about your life. And as I was sitting reading the Sermon on the Mount this week, I just could not, I don't know, this is more, I'm just tossing out as an idea. I could not help but wonder, is there some correlation between the practices becoming people of giving, praying, and fasting, and then those who do not worry? And some correlation between those of us who live in a culture that is centered around the practice of keeping, striving, and indulging, and the fact that we are riddled with anxiety. And I know, I know clinical anxiety and worry are not exactly the same thing, but they're certainly cousins, maybe siblings, maybe half-stepsister, I don't know. <laughs> There's some overlap there in the Venn diagram, am I right? And I just, I just cannot help but wonder, to the degree that we resist integrating, giving, praying, and fasting into our waking, taking, waking, sleeping, normal lives, are we setting ourselves on a path of worry and anxiety? And are we succumbing to cultural values and cultural pressures that are built into pretty much every single facet of our society? Pressures and fears 
that are pushing us to keep, to strive, and to indulge, to rely on ourselves, to hoard for ourselves, even our own families, take care of my family, let alone a culture of indulgence and quick access and next day shipping and all the things that we have just suddenly in the span of even a decade or two come to take for granted. Like, how many of you go to buy something online at a website, not Amazon? Which we probably shouldn't be shopping at Amazon anyways, but I'm not quite ready in my stage of life to go there yet someday. <laughs> someday I will deal with that demon. But how many of you have ever gone onto a different website to order something, and it's like shipping seven to 14 days, and you're like, oh, sheesh, like, no, I'm not even gonna buy it, right? How quickly did that happen? Right? We live in a culture of indulgence and immediacy that is forming us spiritually, whether we recognize it or not. So that's a little literary context. I think that's important to see where fasting is situated, dead center in the middle of chapter 6. So Matthew 6, 16 to 18. If you want to follow along, I'm in the NIV pretty simple. Jesus says in 16, when you fast, and those three words have been like pretty revolutionary for me the last couple years. When you fast, like we could just stop right there. Is that true about us? Is that even true? For me, it's like, when did I, when, when did I last fast? I don't know. Like, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, again, when you fast, this is Jesus, not Dave, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So, I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple. Two right out of the gate assumptions. Jesus assumes that we fast, and he assumes that we will do it with wrong motives. Right out of the gate. He just knows. He knows, he knows and thinks that we will do this, and when we do it, we will do it with wrong motives sometimes, which should encourage us. It's going to be messy. We should not let people know that we're doing it. This is just between us and God. We don't need to flaunt this. There's no self-righteousness here. There's no religiosity. There's no pretense in this. And there's some sort of reward involved for those who choose to do this. And I would say let's, let's think of reward probably knowing Jesus more in the category of intimacy and growth and maturity rather than like Chuck E. Cheese or Price is Right or like rewards, okay? So think more on the relational growth character formation side of things. And we go on um, into the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and there's this kind of classic imagery, right, of the foolish builder and the wise builder, the wise builder who puts these words, the Sermon on the Mount, and if nothing else in the whole sermon, the practices, puts these things into practice, is like a wise builder who builds their house on a rock. And when the rains come and the floods come, it will not be washed away. And if you don't put these things into practice, if nothing else, these three practices of giving, praying, and fasting, your house will be built on sand. And when the rains come and the floods come, which they inevitably will, your house will be washed away and collapse. And I think 
next month I'll maybe do a more extended teaching on like a biblical overview of fasting. But for today, I just want to hold this really simply in front of us of when we fast, do we fast? Are we people who are even willing to try this this month during Lent? Even if we have wrong motives or we screw it up, my favorite fasting story, and I'm especially going to tell it today because Matt's not here, Matt Holst, first time in his life he tried fasting. I think he's like 20 years old. He's in this mission school with YWAM. <laughs> this is just classic Matt. He, dis- he like conjures up all this energy and strength and like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fast the whole day today. And it's like some random weekday. He's in Kona, Hawaii. Wakes up, skips breakfast. And I think it's barely lunch. And he's on a walk downtown in Kona. And there's a bunch of shops. And there, he happens to walk by a Dairy Queen. And somehow in his convoluted mind, he had deceived himself in that moment into thinking that a Snickers blizzard is a liquid. And he goes in and orders this like extra large Snickers blizzard and grabs it and starts walking down to the pier in Kona and he's sitting out on the pier and he's, he's fasting for the first time in his life and he's surrendered to Jesus and he's eating his blizzard and he's just praying for the lost and, and all of a sudden he finishes it and it, it dawns on him. He's like, he feels it in his tummy, right? And he goes, oh, that was not a liquid. <laughs> And, and he's like, you know, the swings are intense. And he's like, oh, Jesus, oh, I'm so awful. Like, I can't even. He just feels like a failure. And he just, if I remember right, I think he just was praying about it, walking back, like with his head kind of down and feeling bad for himself. And he just felt like Jesus was like, oh, that was awesome. Thanks for trying. Right? So as we go into practices like this, again, I cannot emphasize enough, this is for our formation and growth and to expose what's inside of us so Jesus can, so we can see it and he can see it, right? There is no performance in this. Trying is radical, as Matt always says. So, what is fasting? I mean, really simply, um, oh, there was the scripture. Really simply, fasting is not eating food. I think in our culture, sometimes we consider fasting anytime we cease from doing anything, I'd say that's not a bad thing, but that's more abstinence than fasting. In the biblical kind of literature, a fast is when you don't eat food. And I think there is something, we'll talk about this more in depth again next month, but there's something significant going on in the story of God around food, right? The temptation seen in the garden centers on the allure and desire for food. Not saying food is actually like the evil thing that they commit, it's the, it's the power and it's the the brokenness and the autonomy behind the food, right, that the food kind of presents. But still, the story itself centers around food. And then Jesus' temptation with Satan, again, centers around this idea of food. And Jesus fasts food for 40 days in preparation for being tempted to become the second Adam who completes what the first Adam failed to do, right? So there's something going on that certainly cannot be coincidental in the biblical narrative around the centrality of food, and what it means and speaks to about us as human beings. And so if nothing else, fasting is going without food, sometimes drink, but especially food, for a period of time to give ourselves over more wholly to God. And typically for two practical reasons. You have more time for prayer. It weakens the flesh and kind of wakes you up, I think. 
and you have more time for prayer, and then the money you save. If you don't eat food, you save money. So you could do things with those resources. You could give them away. You could share them. So that's what fasting is. I mean, pretty simple. Um, and obviously there's some caveats we need to have here around body image and diet and even stage of life. Like if you're a nursing mom, you know, going three days without food is probably not a good idea. That could harm your body or your child or, right? So we need some awareness here. This isn't just a catch-all. It's not always simple. Sometimes it's a little more complicated. But at the core, fasting is going without food or drink for a period of time to give ourselves over to God more holy. And in the scripture, there's more than 70 stories of doing this, culminating kind of the central Old Testament, most of them, but some of them referenced in Acts and even like Peter's vision on the rooftop where Gentiles are now welcome into the gospel and the church, right? What was Peter doing? He was doing his midday, three times a day prayer, and he was fasting, right? So it's integrated into the assumed practices of the New Testament, and it culminates and all evolves around the story of Jesus and the 40 days of temptation. And again, I think we can miss this. We can think, oh, Jesus, he's out in the desert, and he's so weak, and the devil comes to tempt him at his weakest moment. But the text doesn't say that. If anything, it implies that Jesus fasts for 40 days, not because it makes him weak, but because it makes him strong to resist the devil. He's preparing for the temptation through fasting. He's not weakening himself. He's strengthening himself for the temptation. And a few other brief history things. The early church pretty clear evidence that the early church's normative practice was to fast every Wednesday and Friday from sunup till sundown, twice a week, 52 weeks a year. And this is a great quote. Some of these, some of these notes I stole from a John Mark Comer teaching, but I did check them and cross-reference just to make sure they were accurate. This is a quote from a first century, second century document called the Didache that the early church kind of circulated. It's not part of scripture, but it's, it's about as close to the ending of the canon of scripture as we can get in terms of documented history. And there's a line in there that says this, but do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites, which is the Jews, because Jews would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. They fast on Monday and Thursday, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday, right? So this is the earliest Christians. They don't want to be confused with those Jews, those hypocrites, which is a little snarky and judgmental, and we could talk about that. But clearly, this shows that the early church community thought it was normative to be fasting twice a week. And this is, this is crazy. Well, this is crazy to me, but I'm kind of a nerd. If you look at, through church history... Um, we can go forward from the beginning of the first century all the way up to the 1700s. John Wesley, father of kind of the first great awakening British uh, Anglican minister who traveled the world and stirred a whole bunch of growth and missions and all kinds of beautiful things. He wrote this early in his life when he was younger, in the early 1700s. While we are, we're at Oxford, the rule of every Methodist was, unless in the case of sickness to fast every Wednesday and Friday in the year, in imitation of the primitive church, for which they had the highest reverence. So again, I'm not, we don't know for sure that that was normative for a full 1,700 years, but we know that as, as recent as a couple hundred years ago, Wesley's looking around at the church going, yeah, you guys know, right? Like, it's normal 
that we fast twice a week as Christians. And he says this, I think a few decades later in his life, he's kind of observing the church, and this is very snarky and sarcastic and almost borderline mean. But it says something nonetheless. And I fear that there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and Ireland, who following the same bad example have entirely left off fasting, who are far for, so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast twice in a, in a month. Can you believe those people? <laughs> yeah. Are there not some of you who do not fast one day from the beginning of the year to the end? Yeah, there's some of us, probably most of us in this room. <laughs> We're those people. The man or woman, sorry, 1700s, the man that never fasts is no more in the way of heaven than the man that never prays. So, why am I sharing all this? To guilt and shame you into fasting. No, my, my intention in doing a little bit of historical recovery here on this simple idea of fasting is to help us see, to flip the table and flip the script, to help us see we are the strange ones. In the span of the body of Christ and church history, we, in the modern age, we're the weirdos. We're the ones who think fasting is odd or cultish or maybe just an exercise fad or something like that. And this is, this is crazy. When I, I, I genuinely did not know this until this week. So I lived in Turkey for a season in my early 20s on a mission, uh, mid-length mid missions trip. And we were there during the practice of Ramadan. And I remember thinking to myself, man, these Muslims are so committed to their faith, right? Like this isn't, they don't eat food for 40 days until the sun goes down. They do a full like 16 hour fast from bedtime till dinner the next day for 40 days straight. And I just remember being like, these people are just like all in. Like this is crazy. I don't know any Christians who do anything with that level of like commitment and sacrifice and intensity every year. And I'm reading a book this week by Philip Jenkins on church history. The festival holiday of Ramadan celebrated by Muslims was copied from the Syrian churches in the seventh century who practiced 40 days of fasting every day. When? During Lent, leading up to Easter, which had been a practice, I found out, from the first century that Christians everywhere around the Middle East and Mediterranean would fast at least a week or two every day leading up to Easter so that the fresh message of the gospel so their hearts would be tender to their brokenness and their weakness and their limits and their needs, so that the gospel message on Easter Sunday when they celebrate the risen Christ would penetrate deeply into their soft, tender hearts. And I, I'm reading that and I'm like, are you kidding? I'm, like the reason, the reason Ramadan is so intense is because it was an evolution and iteration of, of Christianity. <laughs> because Christians were so committed and so intense, and fasted for 40 days. And in the seventh century, that became kind of the normative practice for the church worldwide. And it had been practiced in pockets for centuries before that, dating back to the Didache and these twice a week fasts. So again, I do not share this to kind of pressure us, or what I want us to see is how we are the ones who live in a strange culture. We are the ones whose Christian faith has been co-opted by models of discipleship that are very modern and very rational and very disembodied. This kind of modern dualism of the mind and spirit and soul 
and then the physical flesh and body. And it has been Christians for almost all of history who knew that we are an embodied spirit, one whole person, and that formation and growth and discipleship is equally accessed, if not more powerfully accessed, through our stomachs than just our brains. So an invitation for Lent to fast a meal one day a week, or maybe fast a whole day. Maybe do breakfast and lunch. Maybe do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Maybe do whatever. But for the next four or so weeks till Easter, I'd invite you guys, I'd challenge you to try this with, with bad motives, with messy motives, with Dairy Queen blizzards, all of it. Just try it. And with that extra time that you save from not eating food, however long or short that is, spend it in prayer and estimate how much money you just saved by not eating and give that money away. Give it to someone who needs some more money than you. Spend it in prayer and give the money away. And in thus doing, we are participating in all three of the only spiritual practices that Jesus seems to instruct, let, no, not even instruct, assume that we are already doing as his followers. So I'm going to end here. I'm going to share a story, and then we're going to hold some worship space. Um, I know I'm going a little long today, and, and I don't know. To be honest, I don't, I don't really care today. <laughs> Sometimes I care, and I feel bad, and afterwards, Katie will be like, honey, but I don't know. Today, I just don't care because I think this is important. So about 10 years ago, circa 2011, a younger, well, about the same skinniness, a younger Dave, still skinny, uh, was serving in Cambodia on a mid-length missions trip. And we taught in schools, we did youth ministry, and we had joined and become members of this kind of small village church just outside of Batamong, Cambodia, up in the northern province. And about halfway through this time there, I was getting to be friends with this pastor, and one, one Sunday he goes, Oh, David, ah, next Sunday, you bring, you bring the message, okay? Okay, Sermon on the Mount, good luck! <laughs> and just, just for context, right? I know many of you know, I mean, you know me now, I'm, I'm super smooth and cool and confident. But let me just try, stretch your imagination here. When I'm 20, I'm like a skinny little white kid from the Burbs of Minneapolis who studied math in college. So I'm like, a, I'm like a professional nerd. And I have never done public speaking in my life, let alone preached a sermon. And I'm pretty sure I had only been a Christian about two months, really, in a committed sense. Short answer, I have no idea what I'm doing. And this pastor asks me to preach a sermon on potentially the like, most important or most focused on text of all of Scripture, the entire Sermon on the Mount. So I start preparing for this like I had learned to prepare for anything in college or school or academics. I just compulsively read the Sermon on the Mount multiple times a day, just scouring it, searching it, spinning it around in my head, rationally trying to solve this puzzle and prepare this teaching. And a week's gone by and I've spilt dozens of hours preparing this message and I have this like notebook of ramblings and no one's ever taught me to do this. I don't know how to public speak. I don't know how to organize my thoughts. And it's the morning of, it's Sunday morning, and we live in this three-story building. And so I had been in the habit during that season of 
every morning at sunrise going up and sitting on the rooftop of this. Um, let's see, do I got? Yeah, here's some. This is Cambodia from that, that trip. Um, that's where I would sit up on this roof and I would, I don't know what I would do, but I'd kind of pretend to pray. I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd read the Bible. So I'm sitting up there and I have like these notebook papers with a message that I've somewhat created this week. And I'm starting to feel a little anxious and nervous. Again, this is not an intimidating setting. This is like a church in a village and half of the church are children under five. But in, in 12 hours of me reading the Sermon on the Mount and reflecting and writing my notes, essentially what my message that I've prepared is, hey, you guys thought that Judaism was intense. But guess what? Jesus is more intense. You thought that following the law was enough, but no, you have to change your heart to the deepest penetration of every nook and cranny and every thought. So you thought, you thought the bar was here? No, Jesus says the bar is here. He wants your whole life. And I'm going to preach this to like six-year-olds and a bunch, of, <laughs> a bunch of impoverished villagers in Cambodia. Like, I'm so completely out of touch and unaware and have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm scrambling through my notes and I'm scratching stuff out and like rewriting it and I'm, I'm getting more and more stressed. And all of a sudden I hear my team, they're like circling up their bicycles to go ride out to this village for a half hour and... And I hear all the guys yelling and ramming each other with bikes and they're hooting and hollering at me to hurry up. So I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So I grab my stuff and I'm starting to walk down the steps. And I think saying that I heard God's voice would be far too strong, but I felt a deep impression that I was to not leave and I was to keep reading. That's the phrase I heard, keep reading. And I'm like trying to kind of ignore it because I'm in a rush and I'm going down the stairs. And by the time I get to the bottom level, it's like so strong. And I'm like, no, I need to keep reading. And I tell the team, hey, just go, I'll catch up. Maybe I just won't show up. I don't know. <laughs> kind of feel like puking. I don't really want to go preach. And uh, I walk back up the stairs and I sit down in my chair and I just keep reading. Um, oh, sorry, that's the wrong scripture. So this is Matthew 8, verse 1 through 3. So I open up my Bible and I, I mean, genuinely, I barely made it through these first three verses. Um, when, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And I just start weeping and I don't even fully know why. And I feel like, I feel like in a moment, in seconds, like the Lord taught me more than I had learned in 12 hours of reading the whole Sermon on the Mount on repeat all week. I learned more in like 15 seconds of reading those three verses than in the entire week of preparation. And it just hits me like a ton of bricks. I'm just going to read a couple of reflections I wrote. I will never be able to live up to the standards Jesus has set in the Sermon on the Mount. Be they moral, ethical, spiritual practices, 
And in a sense, I actually wonder if that's kind of Jesus' point. His seemingly exaggerated hyperbolic demands of perfection in the Sermon on the Mount cannot be achieved by those old religious methods of effort and striving and religious willpower. My perfection, my growth, my maturity will only be found as I accept to the painful depths of my being, my neediness for Jesus to be the only one who can heal me. As it says in multiple other places in the Gospels, for he did not come for the healthy but the sick. And the irony of that statement is every human being is sick and in need. The only difference is those of us who recognize it and those of us who don't. And this is crazy, right? Like, this man who's physically maimed from leprosy, he's a social outcast, he's rejected, he's probably not even allowed to be up on the mountain listening to Jesus teach. He sees Jesus for who he truly is and understands the gospel far more clearly than anyone else sitting there listening to his words. And I just see the irony of Jesus walking down this hillside and Peter standing over his shoulder. And this man in desperation, not a good theology, not a Bible study, in desperation because of physical need and brokenness, throws himself at his feet and says, I have nowhere else to go. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what is Jesus' response? What's his response always to that request? I am willing. And I'm just crying in my shed this week, writing these notes, and I'm just like, oh, how he longs to make us perfect. Those parts of ourselves, the brokenness, the pain, the disappointments, the parts we hate, the parts we hide, the parts we cope to avoid, he longs to get in there and make us perfect. He longs to heal them. He longs to perfect them. That's our destiny. That's our inheritance as followers of Christ. And it's not lost on me that Peter, the apostle, the rock, the foundation of the church, when will Peter's big moment of growth and transformation come? When he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration? No. When will Peter's big moment of growth and transformation come? After he's denied his best friend and bailed on him like a coward. And he's returned to fishing. <laughs> and he sits on a beach and his buddy Jesus comes and goes, Peter, do you love me? And he comes into a place of Peter now. What has changed? Peter is aware of his need. And I just fear for, I feel for myself, I fear for our culture, I fear for the church, that we live in an age of gratified needs and that we would become so numb to the depths of how much we actually need him. And I fear that I'm going to spend the next 40 years trying to like convince people to pray convince people to fast because we've so lost touch with the fact that we need to pray and fast. We need to give away our money. We need to confront the fears and brokenness within ourselves. And I'm convinced that the way to access that need, to wake it up, is not through Dave crying and giving sermons. It's through prayer, it's through fasting, it's through trying it in your own body. So the invite for Lent is to fast once a week. And I pray and hope that some of us will just not stop doing it. 
And I pray and hope that it will release more joy and more freedom and more liberation. And it'll wake us up to the ways that we are being kind of commandeered by some other Lord other than our Lord Jesus. So I'll end with this. Guys, I'm so sorry. We're going to go to worship here. I'm just going to pray this over us. This is out of Matthew's gospel a few chapters later. These are Jesus' word. I pray over myself. I pray over this community. Um, yeah, would we hear Jesus' words afresh? He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary, who are burdened. Come to me, all of you who have need, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I pray over this church family. I pray over the church in our city, God. Would you continue to wake us up? I think you're wanting to do something in the church in this time. You're wanting to wake us up to our need. You're wanting to show us how other things fail to satisfy, how other... We don't need more sermons. We don't need more learning. We just desperately need a, a stirring and a waking up to our deep need. And I'll hand it over to these guys to hold some space, um, but I just invite you guys to pray on that for Lent. You know, what does is, what is it look like to expose yourself to your own need in this Lent season? It's what Lent's all about in many ways. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.